Hello, it's Thursday, April the 13th, and welcome to Area 45, the Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio, something a little different for you. Dan Balls, Chief Correspondent at the Washington Post, and this week a Hoover Media Fellow in residence here on the Stanford campus. He's one of the nation's most accomplished political journalists and author of four books, two of them New York Times bestsellers. He's a regular panelist on PBS's Washington Week. You won't find a more knowledgeable authority on how politics and politicians are covered. And that's our topic today, the media versus Donald Trump. Dan, thanks for coming west and joining us. Bill, thank you. Pleasure to be here. You wrote a column earlier this month with the headline, quote, it went off the rails almost immediately, how Trump's messy transition led to a chaotic presidency. Let's talk today about something just as messy, just as quickly off the rail, this administration's relationship with the media. <laughs> I am not going to shame you by uh, mentioning how many years you have been in Washington, <laughs> D.C. <laughs> it's more than a couple. More than a couple. You have seen more than one or two presidents come and go, and you've seen more than one or two press secretaries come and go, and you've seen more than one or two White House correspondents and political reporters come and go. Have you ever seen anything quite like this relationship? Bill, not at all. And it, it's funny because we've been we have been saying this about President Trump since long before he was president and when he was a candidate. It seemed like at every turn in the campaign, we would say we've never seen anything like this. And, you know, I would be out traveling or anywhere and someone would come up to me and say, have you ever, you know, have you ever been through a campaign like this? And, you know, the, your first reaction is every campaign is different. And so you say, well, no, we've never been through anything like this. But that was certainly the case with, with the, the presidential campaign. And, and in many ways, it's even more the case with Donald Trump as president. I mean, it, it, he, he is unlike any president any of us has ever dealt with in our lifetimes. Um, different in so many ways, you know, the first president without any governmental experience, without any military experience, without any political background, uh, comes to the job as a total newcomer and operates in the way he did in the campaign in wholly unpredictable ways, although they have become more predictable in their unpredictability. Um, there are certain traits about him. And, and the relationship between President Trump and the media and the Trump White House in the media is as contentious as anyone I've I've experienced. I mean, you talk about how long I've been around. I came to Washington in the fall of 1972, mm -hmm. just as the Watergate uh, scandal was really beginning to unfold. I, I was at National Journal Magazine, so I didn't have any direct involvement in the in the coverage of that. I wrote about economics at the time, but but my history in Washington goes back to that point, and obviously the relationship between the Nixon White House as that scandal unfolded uh, and the press was very very contentious. What's different about this is that we're not in the middle of, you know, that kind of a scandal. Obviously, the Russia issue hangs over the White House, but that's not the, that's not the basis for the difficult relationship. It has to do with many other things. Now, I grew up in Washington during that time, too, so I'm a child of Watergate, and I also grew up reading Doonesbury, which would come to me every day in the Washington Post. My first job, actually, Dan, was delivering the Washington Post every morning, which was actually a wonderful experience for responsibility, and I think in a better world, more kids would be delivering newspapers <laughs> to just teach about the appreciation for getting an education on having to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning every day. Um, I have a book at home of Doonesbury cartoons from the Watergate era, and I'm going to read you one from April the 7th, 1974, because I think it pertains to what's going on today. And the cartoon goes as this. A reporter says, Ron, sometimes I imagine you get up in the morning. He's talking to Ron Ziegler, Richard mm -hmm. Nixon's press secretary. He says, Ron, sometimes I imagine you get up in the morning, look in the mirror before you shave it, and think to yourself, Ron, you're about to begin another day of evasion and deceit. Here's my question, Ron. What do you do after you've come to such a realization? Ron Ziegler says, I shave. 
<laughs> Scott is is Donald Trump's press secretary is Scott Spicer the Ron Ziegler of the 21st century. Well, I, I never think of uh, exact comparisons, but 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 uh, Sean Spicer has uh, has so badly hurt his reputation uh, during these first months as President Trump's press secretary. I, I don't envy him his job, and and a lot of us have worked with Sean for years, um, and he was good and straightforward to deal with. Um, he was a he was a professional. He's in a he's in a terribly difficult position. Right. Uh, he has an audience of one. Um, he has a president who routinely does not tell the truth, um, who says outlandish things, who says false things, um, and he is forced to, in one way or another, defend or clean up after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in doing that, um, he has become. You know, far more aggressive than he probably should have. He has said things, as he did this week, about um, about Hitler and and the Holocaust that that are beyond the pale. Um, and it has it has created an environment in which his credibility has been so badly damaged that it makes it difficult for him to continue in his job. I mean, one would hope that what he went through this week uh, can act as a kind of a circuit breaker. Um, and allow him, in a sense, to kind of uh, step back, regroup. Uh, you can never really start over, um, but to try to, you know, turn the page on what has been a very, very difficult period uh, and maybe begin anew a little bit and, and, and come to a different approach in that briefing room. Right. Now, the pushback from the Trump White House would be, now, wait a second. You guys never really covered us fairly in our estimation during the campaign. You guys have hated us from the get-go. You guys were rooting for Hillary Clinton in the general election. You're now out to get us in ways that I've never seen with the president. Look at how you covered Barack Obama and look how you're covering us. How can you dare accuse us of being liars when you were the ones actually were engaging in a double standard? Well, they, they make that case very, very strongly. I, 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 one of the interesting things to me is about the degree to which um, the press writ large and and you know, I'm always reluctant to do that because the press is a combination of or a right. collection of individual organizations and, it, and, and within those organizations, individual reporters. But put that aside for a minute. Um, you know, the press was criticized early on for being uh, too obliging to Donald Trump. Right. You know, CNN put him on the air constantly when he was a, was a relatively new candidate. All his rallies were carried live. He got so much more attention than any other Republican candidates. The press was... Um, described as the enabler, the facilitator to, to the rise of Donald Trump. And then suddenly the criticism from the Trump side when coverage got tougher uh, is that you're being entirely unfair, uh, you're out to get Donald Trump. Um, I, you know, I, I think neither is is accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a phenomenon as a candidate, and, and as you know, Bill, a, a, a candidate who is a phenomenon tends to get a lot more coverage than people who aren't. Um, and some of that is critical, and some of it is straightforward, and, and some of it may be laudatory, but that, that is sort of the way the system works. As Donald Trump moved from, you know, implausible candidate to potentially plausible candidate to a, f- a likely nominee to nominee, the, the tendency is coverage changes, um, and it should change. I mean, I've always believed that the, that the closer you get to becoming uh, a plausible candidate for president or president, 
the more rigorous the coverage by the press ought to be. Um, you can't apply the same standard to everybody because we don't have the resources. I mean, if in the Republican race last time around, there were too many candidates. You couldn't you couldn't apply the same standard in terms of rigor of coverage to every candidate. So you have to you have to make those shifts. Um, I, I don't think the press was rooting for Hillary Clinton. The, the Clinton campaign, which we all covered pretty closely, mm -hmm. certainly does not believe that. They believe that we paid way too much attention to the emails. That that was a phony story. Um, they they have their grudges, just as the the, the Trump team has its gr grudges. But um, the. Donald Trump, as a candidate, and President Trump in office, has challenged the press in ways that other candidates and presidents have not. And that is, again, going back to what I said, by the kinds of things he has said and done. Um, you know, I think, I think reporters uh, have a commitment to trying to tell the truth as best as we can discern it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think most honest reporters follow that dictum, doesn't matter whether it's a Republican president or a Democratic president. And when, when Trump has said things that are demonstrably untrue, the press goes after him. And I think it, it has to go after him. It has to, it has to hold accountable people who have that kind of power um, and who say things that aren't true. Um, that, has, that has widened the gap between the Trump White House and the press corps. Are you going to the White House Correspondents' Dinner? You know, that's an interesting question. I think I am going to go. Um, I... Um, I was not sure I was going to go. Um, my my fondness for the White House Correspondents' Dinner has diminished over the years as it has become more and more of a spectacle. Right, and this is why I asked the question. I, I was a journalist in a past life. I actually went to the White House Correspondents' the year when Oliver North's assistant, Fawn Hall, was invited. Uh, I believe by the late Michael Kelly. By the late Michael Kelly, right. and and in, and in this some was, ways, unfortunately, was kind of the beginning of I think what we'd agree is a downward spiral, where the White House Correspondents' Dinner kind of became a morphing with entertainment, and now became a question of who's sitting at what table, and became sort of celebrities who want to hang out with journalists so they can feel smarter, and journalists who want to hang out with celebrities so they can feel cooler, and just so right. it's a bad and high school prom. Exactly, and then and then with you know with the advent of smartphones, the you know it became a, a, a kind of a, a selfie orgy. Um, anyway, for those reasons, um, I, I have been less inclined to want to go. I mean, I go with some frequency, right. um, but when I, you know, when I am away or or choose not to go, I'm just as happy. Um, but this year, but this year, no president. This year, no, no president. No White House staff, and nobody from the White House staff. Um, my my original hesitation about the White House Correspondents' Dinner was. The relationship is so fraught right now. Um, it's probably just better to stay away right. and just let the dinner go and see what happens. Um, when the president uh, said he was not going to go, my inclination still was that I was going to stay away. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've been the last couple of years. Every third year to stay away is, you know, is fine. Um, then when the entire White House staff and presumably the rest of the administration said we're not going to go. I thought, well, this is maybe this is the year to to stand with the journalists right. um, and stand for the First Amendment, and um, and then they just announced the the winners of the three awards that the that the White House Correspondents Association gives out every year, and two of those awards are giving to are being given to colleagues of mine at, at the Washington Post, Dave Farenthold, who's won every award uh, available for for his coverage of Trump's foundation, uh, and Greg Jaffe, who uh, was uh, White House correspondent during the, the uh, 
Obama administration. So for that reason, I'm now going to go. But uh, I, I do find that dinner, um, you know, past its prime, if you will. I thought that Donald Trump has missed a big opportunity here, Dan. And the opportunity was this. At the end of the day, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, forget about the celebrity star turns and the red carpet and all that. It's about one thing. It's about raising money for scholarships. I thought that the easiest fix for Trump here, don't go to the dinner, you're right, you're going to sit there and you don't take jokes very well and to sit there and get roasted is not going to be pleasant and you're going to do a bad job of getting jokes in return. But what you could do is write a check for $100,000 to the Correspondents' Dinner and say that you believe in the cause and then let the Correspondents' Dinner uh, Association decide if they'll take the check or not. So, But he hasn't done that for some reason. No. Well, maybe when he hears this podcast, he will think about doing it. <laughs> I mean, it's an intriguing idea. I would like to walk you through a few... Um, changes uh, since your time in Washington uh, as a pertain to political journalism and have you give me a yes, no, you're out of your mind response to how these have affected the craft. Uh, number one, a former colleague of yours, Paul Taylor. Paul Taylor asked a very interesting question to Gary Hart. He asked, Gary Hart, have you ever committed adultery? Is that a good thing or a bad thing for political journalism? Because I would contend, Dan, that ever since that question was asked, political journalists have been trying to weigh how much to get into the private lives of politicians. Yeah. Um, I was national editor at the Post at that time and and, uh, and was very close to Paul. Um, you know, I, I think it was a turning point, but I think, I think Hart himself was a turning point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I guess I've never come down uh, hard on Paul for asking the question because this was, this was a moment in which the world was changing. Um, and it wasn't just political journalism that was changing. It was the world in general that was changing. Right. Over a period of time, um, media became more intrusive in the private lives of all kinds of people who were in the public domain. It started most f and at first with celebrities, whether it was, you know, supermarket tabloids or People magazine or Us magazine. Um, consumers wanted to know much more about the private lives of people that they watched on television, saw in the movies, and then were running for president. Um, there was a time, obviously, as you remember in Washington, in which the private lives of politicians were considered out of bounds, right. uh, unless there was a direct connection to public performance. Um, the, and I think the name Wilbur Mills comes to mind. Wilbur Mills, Wilbur Mills comes to mind. The, you know, the, 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 uh, then the esteemed chairman of the Powerful Ways and Means Committee, as the cliche would always be written, uh, who jumped into the title basin um, because he was after a woman named Fanny Fox. And it was a, you know, it was a terrible scandal uh, and an embarrassing moment for Wilbur Mills, obviously. Um, but, it was, but it was a reminder of how things were changing. Right. And, um, you know, there were politicians who drank heavily and were not, you know, didn't pay any price and people back home didn't necessarily know it. Um, that's a difficult standard for journalists. Right. And so things, things changed. And the 88 campaign was the, was the moment at which, and Matt By has written a, a really good book about this, um, you know, the, the, going through the whole episode. Um, I think he's tougher on Paul than I would be, mm -hmm. um, but there's no question that that campaign was a moment at which the world changed. Right. Now, is it is it is it better or worse? You know, I, I think it's I, I think it's more honest. Um, I think that journalism can't have double standards about the people they cover. Uh, 
you know, I think we have to recognize that politicians are human beings, uh, that they do have flaws and foibles. I, I, I've always been more of a, you know, more of a, a dove, I guess I would say, than a hawk in this term, in terms of this kind of coverage. For me, every every case is an individual case. I've I've found it difficult to apply a uniform standard to what should be put into the public domain and what shouldn't. Um, but at this point, if you run for president, you have to assume that there is going to be nothing out of bounds, fairly or unfairly. And I think that the the bigger change that has happened, Bill, is not simply the the sort of in a sense the the mainstream media. Uh, it's the ability of this information to come into the right. public domain from all sorts of other directions, and uh, and I think that's what has put us where we are today. Okay. Um, second variable, the McLaughlin Group. And this is the idea of a journalist going on TV and becoming, in effect, performers, opinionated performers, getting paid well for their services. Good thing or bad thing for your craft? Probably not a good thing. Um, I mean, it, again, it is. It is. It is what it is, and it it is the way the world works. Um, you know, the McLaughlin Group was was uh, singular in one sense. I mean, it was it was the most theatrical uh, of of all of these shows. Um, you know, the most kind of pure entertainment, and the most you know a, a kind of you know people really taking sides and 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 having at it um, for performance. Obviously, um, I, I think what has concerned me for some time and and even more so today than you know five years ago um, is the degree to which this has now come to be expected and accepted um, as part of the journalist's role um, and I think what worries me now is that and, and I see this and I you know I'm, I'm I'm as guilty of it as as anybody else so I'm not I'm not trying to point fingers on this but there is now a tendency through these kinds of <coughs> through these kinds of programs to make journalists act as if they know something about everything right. um, and I know I don't know something about everything um, and it, it, it there was a time when if you were invited on to a particular program it was because you had written something about something and you had you had some expertise limited as that may be to, to lend to it now it is, what do you think about A, B, C, D, E, F, G, uh, because that's what's in the news this morning or today. And I don't think that's particularly good. I think that journalists need to continue to develop some kind of expertise and not assume that being able to comment on, you know, the news of the moment qualifies as really good journalism. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I would call it, uh, Dan, the culture of the hot take. Uh, this is a phrase you hear on ESPN all the time, a hot take on something that the Washington Redskins draft, a wide receiver in the draft. Dan Baltz, what's your take on this? Oh, it's the worst thing they've ever done. Like, That's your hot take. Uh, I think too many political journalists engage in the hot take. They just go on air and they offer an opinion on something which either they're not really well-versed in, especially if it's, say, economic news or foreign policy news, but just their opinion is out there, and it's just not good for the I, I agree with that, and <clears throat> you, you mentioned ESPN. I mean, one of my uh, um, criticisms, really, has been what I'd describe as the ESPNization of political coverage, right. um, which is um, a constant focus on winners and losers, mm -hmm. ups and downs, um, speculation about the future as opposed to digging into what actually happened in the past. Um, and as you say, constant hot takes in which journalists are 
in a sense, pushed to have strong opinions one way or the other, um, when in fact, you know, good reporters are have been trained not to have those, and to the degree to which you have opinions, and obviously everybody does, right. to try to keep those out of your reporting. Um, and, you know, the, the, the push and the pressure now puts that in conflict. All right, that drives us to our next would-be villain, which is the Internet. And what I'd say about the Internet, Dan, it's the idea of clickbait, that you can write a story for the Internet, but the Internet has to have a rather sensational headline on it to draw you to it, to click on it, to draw traffic to it. Also, the nature of writing for the Internet. It tends to be more point by point. We were talking about this uh, before we came on the air here. The idea that stories on the Internet now tend to be, you know, four reasons why, six things to watch for, you know, ten reasons why this happened. Uh, the thoughtful Dan Baltz 1,500-word, you know, discussion of why Wisconsin didn't go to the Democrats in 2016. Internet's not very accommodating for that sort of thing. No, unfortunately it isn't. I, I, uh, it's, it's a problem. Um, it's a problem probably at every site, including ours. Uh, we write provocative headlines. We have good, smart young people who understand, you know, the importance of that. Um, sometimes those headlines concern me. Um, sometimes the degree to which we focus on a particular topic yeah. uh, worries me. I remember one day during the height of the Sarah Palin phenomenon, um, we had literally a dozen or 15 links on our homepage to something that had happened with Sarah Palin that day. Uh, and that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for a number of us. And we went to the, you know, the, the senior editors and said, this is nuts. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, what she said and did was controversial and it deserves attention, but not 15 or 16 links on our homepage. Um, um, uh, the flip side of that, though, Bill, is that one of the things that we've found, and we are, you know, we're very digitally focused. I mean, we have made a turn from, you know, being a, a primarily a print organization that has, you know, tried to figure out the Internet to a digital operation that still publishes a print edition. Um, that's changed the culture of what we do. It's changed the rhythm of what we do. It's changed the way a lot of us do our, our work. Um, but what we have found is that the best of our journalism is the journalism that draws the most attention. I mean, the kind of reporting that some of our national security people have been doing on Russia, for example, draws huge attention. Um, particular pieces that we did in the campaign that, that, that went deep into, into a particular aspect of it draw a, a, a huge audience. And so, obviously, some other kinds of stories that you, know, that, you, that you or others or I might consider clickbait do well, too. There's no question about that. Um, but, um, but our focus has been on that kind of quality journalism, and we think that there is a payoff in that. And, and so, we're, you know, we're continuing to, you know, in a sense, double down on that. Let me throw one more factor at you, homogeny. You and the late David Broder have one thing in common. You're the sons of Illinois. So you're a very nice gentleman from the Midwest. How many other mild-mannered Midwestern types are there practicing journalism Washington these days? If you listen to, say, Tucker Carlson talk about this, uh, Tucker talks a lot about, he's, one of his complaints about modern political journalism, too many people cut from the same cloth. Went to very similar schools, live very close to each other in Northwest Washington, have very similar attitudes, creates kind of a herd pack mentality. Well, there's always been a danger of, of uh, herd or pack mentality in political journalism. I don't think that's a new phenomenon. Um, I, 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 I do think that there is there there tends to be an echo chamber that's created. Um, you know, there was a time when at, at the Post, 
much of our political staff was, you know, was Midwestern uh, or, or, or non, non-Eastern and non-Ivy right. uh, or non-elite schools. Um, you know, that, that kind of ebbs and flows. Um, and, you know, I have nothing against somebody who went to Harvard or Stanford. I mean, <laughs> I went to the University of Illinois, but, um, you know, it doesn't matter where you went to college. I think the key is um, to try to break out of that echo chamber. Uh, and unfortunately, Twitter, which is a, you know, which is a medium we all use, we rely on it, I find it a, an immensely valuable news source, um, also tends to reinforce that echo chamber. I mean, one thing we know about Twitter is that it is not the public at large. Um, it, it is, you know, it is not the kind of people who necessarily voted for Donald Trump, although there are a lot of Trump supporters on there because we all hear from them <laughs> when we do something that they don't like. But, um, um, the the key is to is to get away from the pack uh, and to find ways to break out of that. And I think that 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 has become harder and harder over time, again because of um, the pressure to produce quickly. Um, you know, when I started at the Post, you basically had one deadline for the day, and if you were out on the campaign you had most of the day to put a story together and to report it. You don't have that luxury anymore. And, and, and frankly, that, that burden falls more on younger reporters than it does on somebody uh, who's been around there as long as I have. They spare me some of that. But, um, but if something happens at 6.30 in the morning, we have to have something on our, on our uh, webpage you know, by 6.45 or 7 o'clock. And that reduces the time and um, sort of the ability to get out of the newsroom, to get to places, to say I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ignore what happens for the next hour or five hours or day or two days, mm-hmm. um, and so collectively, we we become focused on the moment um, more so than ever before. The moment is important. Cable reinforces that. Twitter reinforces that, and we're all part of that. Um, and so, um, you know, Dave Broder taught us all. Elections are about voters, not the candidates, and you need to get out and understand the country in order to understand the election. Um, that, as I say, is harder and harder to do. I'm going to tell you a quick David Broder story that I want to conclude the podcast with a question about the Trump White House. But uh, I worked on the Bush campaign in 1992, which was not exactly the happiest place on <laughs> earth. And I would uh, go home very late at night on the subway to the Boston stop and get off the subway very tired, going back for another bad day the next day. It's a funny thing when you work on a campaign at that level, Dan, I was writing speeches on the campaign. You're like the stokers on the Titanic. You see the water coming in. You know the ship is going down. So it's kind of a lousy place to be. And one night I uh, came out of the subway tunnel, and there in front of me was David Broder who lived in northern Arlington and was coming home, took the subway to work. And so I said, you know, the heck with it. I'm going to actually go up and introduce myself to David Broder. And he did the classiest thing, Dan. He asked me who I was. I offered him a lift home. And on the way home, we talked a bit about the Bush campaign. And here's the classy thing he did. He said, here's my card. Give me a call when the campaign is over. In other words, he didn't ask me to call him up the next day and say 100 very bad things about the Bush campaign that he could use, you know, off the record or in a blind quote to trash your place. He said, let's sit down after the campaign and talk about your experience. I thought, just what a, what a remarkably nice man. He, he had a quality about that. <coughs> Excuse me. He had a quality about that. Um, he was interested in the views of every person he came in contact with. Mm-hmm. I mean, he obviously dealt at a very high level, you know, governmentally in, in administrations and politically on campaigns and, and knew, you know, everybody in power. Um, 
but I, I was always struck. I mean, I, I, I met Dave as a, you know, before I, long before I came to the post, and, and I was struck at how generous he was about asking somebody like myself who was a brand-new reporter or somebody like you um, who was, you know, mid-level in a campaign. Um, he, he wanted to know what you thought about things. Right. And he wanted to hear that from a lot of people, and that that set David apart from from most other journalists. He he had a he had a humility about what he knew, um, and a recognition that there was always something more to learn. Yeah, in California, it's the highest praise you can offer to a candidate who comes to visit is you like him because when it comes to the Tony expensive fundraiser, he actually comes in through the kitchen and talks to the people in the kitchen who are actually making the food for the fundraiser. Yeah, that yeah. time as a sign of classy politician. Only a couple minutes left in this podcast, and you have to bounce, but let's circle back to the Trump White House, and let's discuss something that probably can't be solved in two minutes or two hours, two days, two weeks, two months, maybe two years, and that is how to fix the relationship with the press. If you were, by some crazy chance, asked to come down to the Oval Office and talk to the president about media relations, and he said, what would you do? How do I fix this? What's your advice? Um, you know, I'm not in the business of giving advice to politicians. Mm-hmm. I think that, that, that A, there... I would say a couple of things. One, truthfulness is the highest order of anybody in public life. Um, and it is something that journalists respect and the journalists should strive to do as well. Uh, and that, that there, there should be an honest meeting of the minds about that. Um, we're in the business of providing accountability coverage for anybody in power. People in power need to be held accountable, and that's the role of the press. It's not to, it's, we're not trying to pick sides, um, but we, we are going to have an adversarial relationship with anybody who is in power. And I think that, um, that anybody, whether they're the president of the United States or a member of the Senate or a governor, um, should respect the fact that the, the press's role is to ask tough questions, to sometimes write embarrassing stories, but to do it in a fair way. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if we do our job in the proper way, we would hope that we get the respect from the politicians. And I think in general that's the case. Um, you know, the relationship between the Trump White House and, and the press corps is, is contentious. And as you suggest, it's not going to be solved in two days or, or perhaps two years. Um, it, it may be just the nature of the beast at this particular point in time. But I think, I think everybody on each side needs to recognize what are the, what are the proper standards, what, what are the proper approaches, uh, and how do you create um, a, a culture of respect uh, at a time when everybody knows People, are, people have different interests and different responsibilities. Okay. Dan Boltz, thanks for sitting in today. And, hey, thanks for coming out to Hoover and spending a week with us. Bill, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover Fellows straight to your inbox every weekday. You can find the Hoover Institution on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dan Baltz is also on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Dan Baltz. That's spelled D-A-N-B-A-L-Z. You might also want to follow at PostPolitics, which provides the latest Washington Post news and analysis. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care, and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org 
or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.